Hey friends, before we jump in, I wanted to give a heads up. Today's story contains references to sexual assault, opioid addiction, and physical abuse. Please take care while listening. As always, resources related to these and other topics mentioned in today's episode can be found on our website, truercrimepodcast.com. In college, I spent a solid six months binging every available episode of Criminal Minds. Maybe you did the same. But, you know, in case you made better use of your free time, what you really need to know is that Criminal Minds is, predictably, a fictional crime drama. Each episode usually highlights a different case, often a slate of murders, which are investigated by the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit, or BAU. The show is actually a nod to the real-life FBI's BAU, which, according to their Wikipedia page, uses behavioral analysis, or psychology, to investigate complex or time-sensitive crimes. In the opening sequence of Criminal Minds, there's a litany of mug shots that flash across the screen. Each face an infamous serial killer or murderer. I actually rewatched the opening while researching this case, and as the series of faces came and went, I immediately noticed a common thread. But outside of their infamy as killers, what do people like Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, and John Wayne Gacy have in common? Interestingly, the same thing that the unpictured Jake Bird, Coral Watts, and Elton Jackson have in common. And if you're scratching your head because you've never heard of Jake Bird, Coral Watts, or Elton Jackson, then you're actually probably closer than you think. Because what these people all have in common is race. Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, they're all white. Jake Bird, Coral Watts, Elton Jackson... They're all black. And it's why you've likely never heard of any of them. As it turns out, the alleged whiteness of serial murderers extends far beyond the opening sequence of criminal minds. Despite statistical evidence which supports the fact that serial murderers are not disproportionately white, the myth persists. But why? It really didn't make sense to me. In a culture where the over-criminalization of black folks runs rampant, why would the government and the media not take the opportunity to portray Black people as serial murderers in need of capture and incarceration? And like all of the questions we'll explore on this show, I think the answers are many. And today, we'll explore a few. Because this is the story of the botched investigation of Samuel Little. I'm Celicia Stanton, and you're listening to True Crime. Today, I want to start at the end, because this story, it's not for Samuel Little. It's not about glorifying him or making him seem sympathetic. The crimes committed by Samuel Little are horrifying, but they're ones that reveal so much about our systems, about who we believe deserve justice, about how much more energy we expend punishing over preventing. And so the end is this. On December 29th of 2020, Samuel Little died at a California state prison. At the time of his death, he was 80 years old. In 2014, he had been convicted of murdering three different women. 
And so he had been in the process of serving three consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. In 2018, only four years into his sentence, Little began confessing. And so at the time of his death in 2020, he had admitted to 93 different murders, all between the years of 1970 and 2005, 50 of which investigators say they have confirmed, making Little, according to the media, the most prolific known U.S. serial killer. A title which clearly ignores the many serial murders committed by U.S. colonizers and the U.S. government, but arguably is just the right amount of snappy to be the subject of an endless number of movies and books. Except for the fact that it really hasn't been. Because despite Little's staggering number of victims, he remains relatively unknown to the public. Just as he had for the 35 years he murdered women, overwhelmingly Black, across the country. And so... I'm less interested in him and his story and more interested in why the system failed so, so badly. How could a man be allowed to kill with such impunity for so many years? And for this, we'll have to go back to the beginning. Samuel Little was born in June of 1940 in a teeny tiny town in the middle of Georgia called Reynolds. According to reporter Timothy Williams writing for the New York Times, Little told the FBI that his mother had abandoned him as a baby. And while not much has been confirmed about his childhood, investigators believe that Little's mother may have actually been a sex worker and is suspected that he was born during a period of time that she spent in prison. But no matter the exact circumstances, we do know that Little would eventually end up in Ohio, living with his grandparents, who would raise him. According to a three-part investigative feature in the Washington Post, written by Mark Berman, Wesley Lowry, and Hannah Knowles, Little would tell investigators that he was seven or eight when he first remembered having homicidal and violent urges. He'd tell writer Jillian Lauren for the cut about one of his third grade classmates. She had green eyes and a mop of curly red hair, and apparently she'd often stare at him while touching her neck. Lauren would explain that from then on, Little's obsession with women's necks was solidified, writing, quote, not even he knew it yet, but somehow she sensed it was his weakness and she'd taunted him. It was an obsession that would eventually culminate in his murder method of choice, strangulation. And reading this, it was super shocking. Seven or eight years old? Sure, these types of thoughts and behaviors, they'd be alarming coming from folks of any age. But in early elementary school, it felt pretty unfathomable to me. And so I wanted to dig in. There had to be more research on this. And that's how I stumbled upon an article in the Journal of Pediatrics. The 2020 study by Dr. Michael Vaughn and some co-researchers pointed out that research on childhood homicidal ideation is super limited. That said, in their sample of kids ages 5 to 17, the researchers could only identify 0.09% of kids as having homicidal ideation. But they found some other interesting stuff, too. The study revealed that kids experiencing homicidal ideation were more likely to have a lower household income, more likely to be uninsured, and potentially, as a result, less likely to receive regular pediatric care. Pair that with the fact that these kids were also more likely to have a behavioral or emotional disorder, and I'd imagine that consistent denial of medical care would only worsen the same things that put kids at risk of these issues in the first place. And the reality is that most people, they're not Samuel Little. Most people won't experience homicidal ideation, especially as children. But some do. 
And while we can't definitively say that a lack of resources directly spurs homicidal ideation in kids, we can understand that a lack of basic resources is the landscape on which it most often occurs. It's easy to sensationalize killers like Little. It's easy to ask, why did he do that, without really looking for an answer? But it's probably more worthwhile to consider that meeting folks' basic needs might actually counteract some of the earliest and most fundamental causes of violence. And while the intimate details of Samuel Little's upbringing are mostly a mystery to the public, we do know that his first run-in with the criminal legal system came at a young age, when he was only 13 years old. Caught stealing a bike, Little was sent to a juvenile reform school, a place called the Boys Industrial School. And this, it stood out to me, because it was the first in a string of interactions Samuel Little would have with cops, courts, and the law. And sure, looking back, there's nothing we can do today to change the course of Little's life. We already know the ending. But murder after murder after murder, it doesn't happen overnight. No one is born instantly intent on strangling 93 women. Samuel Little's actions had to be the outgrowth of deeper, environmental, even systemic factors. And for me, knowing what these factors are feels important. Maybe it could even be the key to stopping these horrors before they ever happen at all. And so when I dug into the history of reform schools, places like the boys' industrial school that Little attended, I wasn't necessarily shocked to discover that they had quite the reputation. Maybe in the beginning, these schools were well-intentioned. They were first created by so-called reformers, who believed that children shouldn't have to go through the same criminal punishment process as adults. These folks believed that kids, unlike adults, could really change— And so they needed, deserved even, something different. But good intentions, they really only mean so much. And unfortunately for kids like Little, these schools ultimately just mirrored their adult counterparts. According to an article by Amber Armstrong for the Washington Post, these institutions were often punitive, harsh, and known for cultures of abuse. Armstrong writes that there's, quote, no evidence that juvenile residential facilities actually offers anything close to a solid foundation for adulthood or reduces the likelihood of repeat offenses. Samuel Little, of course, offended, murdered again and again. And consider this. A 2015 MIT study looked at 10,000 young people in Chicago who got caught up with the law. The researchers found that over 10 years, the people incarcerated as kids or teens were 23 percentage points more likely to end up in prison as adults when compared with young people who avoided incarceration. The result held even when the researchers controlled for what type of crime was committed. A finding which, to me, seems to highlight the ineffective and even outright harmful impact of juvenile justice facilities. And while I can't say for sure that the time Little spent in reform school contributed to his violent actions, I can say it marked the beginning of what would be a life littered with offenses. At 15, he's arrested for burglary. At 16, he'd be convicted of breaking and entering. And by his mid-20s, according to a timeline created by investigators, he had been arrested 26 times across 11 states. His charges included theft, rape, fraud, assault, among so many other things. Sometimes he'd be let go, and sometimes he'd do time in prison. Either way, each time he was released, nothing would change. It was always only a matter of time before his next arrest. It seemed to me that Samuel Little and the criminal legal system, 
They were in this symbiotic relationship of sorts, one where Samuel could continue his pattern of harm and the system could continue its own. I thought, how could the system not be complicit in Little's crimes if it continued over and over again to do nothing to actually ensure his healing? If not for Little, then for the people he would otherwise harm next. And maybe if our systems were built to actually reduce crime rather than punish it, well, maybe Daryl Brosley's story could have turned out entirely different. Daryl, interviewed for the Washington Post feature article I mentioned earlier, would tell reporters that his mom, Mary Brosley, had disappeared when he was just a kid. A long history of domestic violence and alcoholism had meant that Mary hadn't been able to care for Daryl and his sister. And so they were actually living with his great aunt when his mom stopped coming around. He was an adult when he eventually discovered the truth about what had happened to his mother. Mary Brosley, only 33 at the time of her death, had been murdered on New Year's Day of 1971. Samuel Little had lured her from a bar in Florida after a night of drinking. Mary would be Little's first victim. She had struggled with addiction, with an eating disorder, with violence. She had been estranged from her family. Her struggles were ones that so many people around the world face, and they're also what made her appealing to Little. According to the Post, when Mary Brosley's body was discovered in a shallow grave weeks after her death, Police couldn't identify her, and her blood alcohol levels were so high that they just assumed that that's what had killed her. Her death wasn't classified as a homicide. The truth wouldn't actually come out till Little began confessing, over 40 years later. But it would be five years and a dozen murders after Mary Brosley's death in 1976 that a young Black woman living in Missouri would tell police that a man had kidnapped her on her walk home. According to the Washington Post, the woman told investigators that her kidnapper had physically and sexually assaulted her, and once he fell asleep, she had made her escape, running as fast as she could to find help. And incredibly, in what feels like a scene straight out of a crime drama, investigators headed to the location of the attack, and once they were there, they found Little, still asleep in his car. When police questioned him, Little outright denied the victim survivor's story and claimed instead that she was a sex worker he had paid for sex and drugs. He must have known his story seemed pretty unbelievable, and so he did admit to physically assaulting her, saying he became angry after she suggested what the Washington Post described as a crude sex act. Despite his story, police placed Little under arrest and charged him with rape. But the woman he had attacked struggled with a heroin addiction, and investigators were convinced she was a sex worker, even though she would repeatedly swear she wasn't. But ultimately, the prosecutors didn't feel they had a strong case. They didn't feel that the jury would find her believable. According to the Washington Post, since Little wasn't denying the physical assault, he'd end up with a deal. 90 days in jail and a $100 fine. No sort of treatment to ready him for re-entry, just an exceedingly light punishment that would neither save Little's next victim or remove the trauma that the victim survivor in this case had experienced. But at least the courts would be $100 richer, right? At the time of that 1976 attack, Melinda LaPree, known as Mindy by her friends and family, was 16. Bob LaPree would tell Margaret Baker of the Claren Ledger that Mindy, his younger sister, was brilliant. A musical genius who could teach herself any instrument. But life didn't really seem to care about Mindy's potential, her young age, her bright personality. 
According to the Clarion Ledger, Mindy's mom had passed away when she was only seven. And in the years that followed, she endured repeated abuse from her father. She'd eventually run away and started using drugs. In her early 20s, she gave birth to a son who her family adopted and raised. Mindy, she'd been dealt a hard hand and she was doing what she could to get by. She'd end up moving with her boyfriend to Pescaluga, Mississippi in 1982. And a few months later, a now 22-year-old Mindy began making her income as a sex worker. According to the Post, Mindy was in a group of sex workers the night she got into a beige station wagon with a man who had been offering $20 for a date. The man would turn out to be Samuel Little. The next morning, when a body was found in a nearby cemetery, investigators determined the manner of death to be homicide. They were even sure of the method, strangulation. But what they didn't know, it was equally important. Who was this person? Mindy's family, though, they were concerned. You know, when she went missing, her brother Bob Laprie would tell the Claren Ledger that police wrote off his sister's disappearance because of the lifestyle she had been living. And it was only after his repeated urging that the unidentified body found in the cemetery be tested, the dental records would confirm that the woman they had found was, in fact, Mindy. Incredibly, police would eventually track down Little based off a description of his beige station wagon given by folks who had been with Mindy the night she had disappeared. And according to the Post, investigators would talk to two other sex workers, both who were Black, who said that a man fitting Little's description had previously choked them. But despite these accounts, and the witnesses who saw Mindy leave the night she disappeared, a jury would decide not to indict Little for Mindy's murder. Bob Laprie would tell the Washington Post that he believed that investigators didn't seem invested in solving Mindy's case. He suspected that because the women involved were sex workers and folks with drug addictions, that the prosecutors didn't feel they would be seen as believable. And despite former investigators' insistence that Laprie's suspicions were inaccurate, this story, it was becoming undeniably familiar. And then in 1984, Little was caught assaulting and strangling a woman in his car. He was arrested and charged, and according to Jillian Lauren writing for The Cut, investigators were able to connect Little and this assault to another attack on a woman who survived by playing dead after her attacker had attempted to strangle her to death. Like a broken record, Samuel Little would do what he always did in these situations, saying that the women were sex workers who had tried to manipulate him, this time by stealing his money. One woman would admit during the course of trial that she hadn't told the police the truth about being a sex worker, and the other victim survivor showed up to testify in court while under the influence of drugs according to the Washington Post. Soon after, she'd stopped working with the prosecution entirely. The jury would only find Samuel Little guilty of one charge, false imprisonment, acquitting him of the kidnapping and sexual assault charges. He was sentenced to four years in prison, though he'd serve only a year before he was let out on parole. For me, this case was striking. Here was an instance where police and prosecutors, you know, they actually seemed kind of focused on pursuing Little. And yet, here was the same outcome. It's a conclusion that points to just how deeply broken the entire system is. And I think, you know, it's really, really easy to hear about cases like this and throw our hands up and say, well, you know, what could be done, right? Like these women, they're not exactly cooperating in their cases. It's a question that I wish could inspire as much imagination as it does exasperation. And think about it. What if we lived in a world that actually supported the marginalized? Sex workers, women, Black and Indigenous folks. The list is endless. 
What if people didn't need to fear involvement in their own cases? What if folks' literal jobs didn't automatically render them unbelievable when they did show up? What if this process cared most about the healing of everyone involved? It's a world so different from the one that we live in that getting there, it feels only possible in my imagination. So I can't help but think that abandoning imagination means deciding to accept the scraps given to the people hurt and killed by little, given to anyone who's a victim of harm. And doesn't that mean turning our backs on the folks who are most vulnerable? Writer and poet Aurora Levins Morales says that the stories we tell about our suffering define what we can imagine doing about it. And as organizers Marion Kaba and Rachel Kruzing continue, the prevailing story told about sexual violence, and really about all violence, is that our suffering can be fixed by the criminal legal system. But what if it can't be? What if what we need is something entirely different? But ultimately, in the case of Samuel Little, the failures of these broken systems, they'd continue playing out for nearly three more decades, until in 2012, Samuel Little was arrested again. This time, old DNA evidence had connected him to the 1987 and 1989 murders of three women, Carol Alford, Guadalupe Apodaca, and Audrey Nelson Everett. Despite the DNA linking him to the crimes, Little insisted on his innocence, which meant the cases would go to trial. Jillian Lauren wrote that the trial, which lasted for weeks, included testimony from numerous experts, witnesses, and surviving victims. It was likely the best case ever made against Little in all the years he'd spent in court. And the jurors? Well, they seemed to agree. Because in September of 2014, Samuel Little was found guilty of all three first-degree murder charges. Then, 74 years old, Little found himself sentenced to three consecutive life sentences in prison. And there it was. Finally. But what was it exactly? Victory? I don't know how the victim survivors and family members felt when Little was sentenced. But researching these stories, I just... I felt so angry that this was the best that we had to offer them. Because let's be clear, Little's conviction didn't stop his rampage. It didn't save anyone. In fact, his arrest? It came seven years after he had last committed murder. Little had caused horrible, irreversible harm. Crimes he needed to be held accountable for. But who had actually held him accountable? For decades, Samuel Little murdered women, and for decades, the legal system let Samuel Little get away with it. But why? At the beginning of today's episode, I told you that Black serial murderers are relatively unknown, a kind of question mark to the public. Even though Black folks have been framed, scapegoated, targeted, and overcriminalized throughout history, this particular group, Black serial murderers, they seem almost mythological. I started to wonder if the things that allowed Samuel Little to fly under the radar over and over and over again, what if those were some of the same things that kept him pretty anonymous once the scope of his crimes was known? According to criminal justice professor Alan Branson, the false belief that Black people are more inherently criminal actually dates back to enslavement, when Black people who tried to fight back or escape imprisonment were labeled as fugitive or criminal. So time passes, laws change, but this sham, this idea of, oh, Black people, they're criminals, that sticks around. It just shapeshifts. It rebrands. 
As culture changes, white people with power invent new ways to turn black people into criminals. Fugitive slave laws became the Black Codes, which morphed into Jim Crow segregation, which ultimately became mass incarceration and the racist war on drugs. Branson, the professor, argues that Black criminalization is specific. Racism spins this story, this stereotype about Black people as unintelligent, even as animalistic criminals. And that, well, it doesn't fit with the media story, the police story of serial killers as cunning, charming, highly intelligent. Someone like Ted Bundy? He can be a serial killer. But Samuel Little? No, not so much. And as I read this, I thought, okay, sure, that all makes sense. But serial murder, true crime in general? Let's be real. It's just so, for the lack of a better word, popular. Wouldn't it be to the media's benefit to blow up as many of these stories as they can find? If it bleeds, it leads, right? Because when it comes to serial killers, we're also talking about a hugely profitable industry. Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, all have been the subject of countless movies, books, and podcasts. So what's the big difference with black serial killers? Well, it turns out, interest. Or at least, perceived interest. As Alan Branson explains, the public just doesn't want to hear about perpetrators that they can't relate to. Ted Bundy, he writes, was a law student. Jeffrey Dahmer, he's frequently described as attractive. John Wayne Gacy, he owned his own business. All of these killers have these traits that society says are desirable, and unconscious bias says are white. As journalist Wesley Lowry says in an interview with the Appeal writer Elon Green, what to portray in true crime is a financial decision made based on what is presumed a white audience will care about. And if Samuel Little's life story is less relatable to a white audience than Ted Bundy's, then I'd imagine the same would be true of his victims. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, the majority of violent crimes are committed by a person who is the same race as the victim. Most victims of white serial killers are white, and most victims of black serial killers are black. It made me wonder... Would a white audience in mass be as interested in a story whose victims didn't look like them? It was definitely food for thought. And, you know, over and over again as I was researching, I kept noticing this same trend. All of these articles that discussed Little and his crimes, they all kept describing his victims as mostly women of color. In this classification, it really frustrated me. It felt so broad and ultimately pretty inaccurate. According to the Washington Post, 68 of the 93 women Little confessed to murdering were Black. Nearly three out of every four women he killed were Black. And really, that distinction between Black and people of color, it's, it's not tedious. Terms like people of color or even the newly more popular BIPOC, an abbreviation for Black, Indigenous, and people of color, they're rarely that helpful because they're so often used as these catch-alls when it's totally possible to be more specific, more precise, to say what you really mean. Black women, Asian people, indigenous folks. Grouping all people of color together in this way, it usually means papering over the ways that our different racial identities create radically different experiences for all of us. And it wasn't coincidental that Samuel Little's victims were overwhelmingly Black women. And we know because Little would admit to targeting people he didn't believe would be missed. 
I'm not going to go over into the white neighborhood and pick out a little teenage girl, he'd said, according to the Washington Post. He'd even tell writer Jillian Lauren in an interview from prison, I never killed nobody like my smart baby here. I never killed no senators or governors or fancy New York journalists. Nothing like that. I killed you? It'd be all over the news the next day. I stayed in the ghettos. It was a strategy, and one that was too in line with this country's racism to be random. According to the Washington Post, a police lieutenant in the Mississippi city where little murdered Mindy LaPree would say, if you were an African-American female and you were in the process of any kind of prostitution or illegal stuff, we just didn't treat those crimes as crimes, to be perfectly honest with you. And please understand, this negligence, it's not limited to the South. Lonnie Franklin Jr., a Los Angeles serial killer who targeted sex workers and those struggling with addiction, evaded detection for 20 years for eerily similar reasons to Samuel Little. University researchers Zhu Yang Li and Sasha Reed, writing for the spring 2018 edition of Context magazine, would quote Pam Brooks, a former sex worker who knew Franklin. The police don't care because these are Black women. It's not like Lonnie killed no high-profile white folk. We don't mean nothing to them. We're Black. And while the women that Franklin and Little targeted were overwhelmingly Black, many of them also sat at the intersection of multiple oppressed identities. At least one of the women Little murdered was trans. Several were disabled, many struggled with drug addictions, and a majority were sex workers. All groups that our society treats as completely unworthy of time and attention. And if you hold multiple of these identities, well, then you're just truly disposable. And so the most vulnerable are left with minimal protections that ensure their continued oppression. An example? Violent crime has continued a downward trend in the United States. Over the past several decades, this has been true. And yet, according to research conducted by Indiana University professor Ken Akine, the proportion of sex workers victimized by serial killers relative to their share of the population has continued its rise. Sex workers, despite making up less than one half of 1% of the U.S. population made up 13% of all serial murder victims in the 1970s, a number that would rise again in the 1980s to 21%, and again in the 1990s to 31%, and yet again to 43% in the first decade of the 2000s. Each of these numbers is so shockingly, so mind-bogglingly disproportionate that really it took me a minute to fully comprehend what that meant. Sex workers make up 0.3% of the U.S. population, but 43% of known serial murder victims. These are the consequences of disposability. It creates a culture where the most oppressed are not only the most targeted, but also considered subhuman or unworthy of life itself. Samuel Little would tell Jillian Lauren that he often saw himself as an angel of mercy, killing off folks who he considered, in Lauren's words, half dead. Reading this, I really can't let go of the feeling that those beliefs, they could only come from social conditioning. And sure, many of us conditioned in this society don't become serial killers. But murder? It's not the only way to kill someone. And when our policies and culture criminalize sex work and paint these folks as unproductive and inherently immoral members of communities, the consequences, they're not always death, but they're more than often violent. But it doesn't have to be this way. Many folks want to make the industry safer. And while there have been some successes in creating local safety programs for workers, many activists say that addressing the root causes of violence requires decriminalization of sex work. 
The fact is, in most places, sex work is illegal. It means that every time these people go to work, they're breaking the law. According to Lee and Reed, writing for Context magazine, sex workers are under constant threat from multiple directions. Workers must face the risk of violence from clients and johns while also facing the continuous risk of arrest and incarceration. And these threats only reinforce one another because it means that workplace violence goes unreported to anyone who could provide help or resources because doing so means possibly facing criminal charges, especially if you're Black or trans. Despite the fact that Black folks make up only 12% of the U.S. population, according to FBI crime data from 2015, nearly 40% of adults arrested for sex work were Black. And all of this ultimately continues a cycle where sex workers are considered easy targets for those looking to take advantage of vulnerability. Lee and Reed go on to say that stopping the loop, it requires a change in culture. They explain that, quote, instead of treating sex work as taboo and relegating sex workers to the margins, we should decriminalize sex work and provide workers with basic services like access to healthcare, affordable housing, and other social services. And maybe if these systems had been in place, maybe if our culture cared about the well-being of sex workers, including those who are Black, Indigenous, disabled, and trans, then maybe so much could have turned out differently. Maybe Little's victims wouldn't have over and over again had their deaths misclassified as accidental. Maybe disappearances that were never taken seriously would have been investigated. Maybe Little could have been appropriately treated for his violence one of the many times he found himself caught. Maybe survivors would have been given access to the resources they needed to heal. Maybe Little's decades of violence could have been cut short. Maybe 93 women would have had the opportunity to live. But they weren't different then, and they're still not different now. Former FBI agent Brad Garrett would tell the Washington Post, could it happen again today? The answer is, of course, yes. All the systems that enabled Little are the same. And until we decide that no one is disposable the violence will continue. The harm inflicted by Little and enabled by our broken systems stretch out to touch so many other people than just the ones who lost their lives. After his conviction, Little would begin confessing to other murders, eventually, but only after numerous bribes. The Washington Post reported that working with the FBI, a Texas ranger named Jim Holland coaxed Little to talk with promises that his story would make him known, that he'd get McDonald's and candy and a TV. Little, who loved art, was even told that maybe they could even arrange for him to have an art studio on the inside. According to the Post article, Jim Holland specialized in getting murder confessions. And the irony that bribing someone to obtain a confession is considered legitimate, it's not lost on me. And it indicates that something is seriously broken if that's the way we get folks to share information. And... While bribery certainly creates perverse incentives for folks to give false confessions, investigators say they have confirmed over 50 of Little submissions with information that not only gave new wind to cold cases, but provided supporting evidence for several false convictions. Innocent people like Jerry Townsend, who went to prison for crimes they didn't commit. According to the Washington Post, Jerry Townsend, a Black man from Florida with severe mental disabilities, pled guilty to charges which accused him of six murders and a sexual assault. He'd do so in order to avoid the death penalty. One of the murders he'd been accused of was that of a 17-year-old Black woman named Dorothy Gibson. Her murder would eventually be linked to Samuel Little. Jerry Townsend would spend 22 years locked away before the case against him was dropped. 
It would take another 17 years before Samuel Little would be identified as Dorothy Gibson's killer. As Little continued to confess, he also began to draw, a hobby he had picked up during one of his earlier stints in prison. He had this remarkable memory for the details of what his victims looked like. And before his death, he completed at least 30 vivid color sketches of the women he had murdered. The drawings were eventually released to the public with notes Little gave about what he remembered of each of the victims. A few of his drawings have been used to help link Little to cold cases. But for others, the drawings have represented everything they may never know. Bernice Talley, who was five years old when her mother disappeared, is convinced that one of Little's drawings is of her mom, Zena Jones. And Little's recollection of what happened to the person in his drawing seems to fit Zena remarkably well. A young Black woman who had disappeared from Memphis in the summer of 1990, Zena's family has wondered what happened to her for decades. I found myself comparing Little's drawing to a photograph of a bright and grinning Zena in a pastel-striped dress, and I couldn't help but find the resemblance striking. But even now, when investigators have the chance to bring some answers to a grieving family, the same patterns of inefficient investigation seem to hold sway. Bernice and her family told the Washington Post that the FBI interviewed them and picked up a few photos of Zena, but they haven't heard from the FBI since. No one has even asked anyone in the family for a DNA sample to compare against the unidentified remains of a Jane Doe found in Memphis that they believe to be the woman in Little's Drawn. Zena's family hasn't even been added to the national pool of DNA kept of folks with missing relatives, a pool that is routinely tested against when new unidentified remains are discovered. A police lieutenant in the Memphis Homicide Bureau would tell Washington Post reporters that COVID-19 had slowed their investigation. It perhaps provided an explanation for the lack of resolution in 2020, but Zena Jones has been missing for over 20 years. What about all that time before the pandemic? Zena's mother had gone to police after she went missing in 1990, but the family would tell the Washington Post that investigators didn't seem very interested in finding Zena because she was an adult because she struggled with a drug addiction. And in the end, even if Bernice and her family get the confirmation that they so desperately want, none of it will bring the woman they deeply loved back. A reminder that all of these actions, they're all so retroactive. And don't we owe it to Zena and her family and all the others just like them to take every action possible to prevent this kind of harm before it happens? A story like this it doesn't have a pretty ending. I don't have a bow to tie it up and make it beautiful. Samuel Little died in the final days of 2020, leaving behind a nearly 40-year legacy of destruction and violence and pain. Angela Williamson, a governmental official who worked on the case, told the Washington Post that if Little hadn't confessed, none of this would have been solved a horrifying reminder of just how little justice the so-called criminal justice system actually offered. Even in prison, Samuel Little called the shots. Hey, don't close your app yet. I want to tell you a couple of things. First, today's episode was made possible by a long list of sources, which you'll be able to find online at truercrimepodcast.com in our show notes. I also want to take a moment to bring special attention to Indifferent Justice, a three-part Washington Post feature by reporters Mark Berman, Wesley Lowry, and Hannah Knowles. 
it was so instrumental, so instrumental in the creation of this episode. And their reporting was excellent. It really helped to bring the details of the story together. Another little housekeeping thing. If you like today's episode, please, 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 it would mean the world if you could subscribe, rate, and review True Crime on Apple Podcasts. I really, I cannot emphasize what a big difference this makes, um, especially for an independent podcast like, like this one is. We're a really small team and anything you can do to help spread the word about true crime, it makes sure that we can turn this project into like longer term sustainable work. And we really want to do that. But the last thing that I wanted to share with you, and this is the most, most important thing. Something else is that when I came up with the idea for true crime, I, I really wanted to create something that was different in the true crime space. I think these stories are really, really powerful. But not just because they let us connect to other people's experiences, but also because I think they give us this opportunity to take action and change our communities, like really change our communities for the better. So every episode, we want to give you some resources to help support you in doing that. Hashtag listening and learning, like that's great, but that's just the start. Earlier, I mentioned the decriminalization of sex work, but there are many more reasons to support this movement than what I could fit into the context of today's episode. If you want to learn more, and I hope you do, I recommend starting with a Vox article. It's called The Movement to Decriminalize Sex Work, Explained by Anna North. And when you're done with that one, you can read another one. It's another article. It's written by Kanaya Walker, and it's called To Protect Black Trans Lives, Decriminalize Sex Work. I also recommend the Sex Workers Outreach Project USA, which is a national social justice network dedicated to fundamental human rights of sex workers and focused on ending violence and stigma. Their website is swapusa.org, which is spelled S-W-O-P-U-S-A.org. And it has tons of information about sex work, resources for the safety and support of sex workers, and ways that you can donate and volunteer. We also talked today about drug use. So I wanted to point you in the direction of the National Harm Reduction Coalition. Their mission is to build power and equity with people who use drugs through access, advocacy, and action. You can learn more about the work that they do and access their national directory to find harm reduction services that are nearby you, where you live, at harmreduction.org. And as always, you can find the links to these and other resources in today's episode in our show notes at truercrimepodcast.com.